Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. Get ready for Women Who Code Talks Tech, where we hear from top technologists discussing highly technical subjects. This week, we have Leilani Lettingham, Product Marketing Manager, API at Covalent, who is giving a talk entitled, Assessing Multi-Chain Data with One Unified API. Enjoy. Welcome everyone to today's session on accessing multi-chain data with one unified API. So we have our speaker here, Lelani. So Lelani is a digital native with an interest in economics and emerging technologies. She entered the blockchain industry upon graduating from the University of British Columbia and has never looked back. Lelani currently focuses on enabling new use cases in Web3 through the power of data. She loves producing educational content that is easily digestible for a wide audience. Her goal is to create a welcoming space that is accessible to all. Over to you, Lelani. Really looking forward to your session today. Thank you. Thanks for that great introduction as well. I'm really looking forward to my first interaction with Women Who Code. What an awesome organization. I kind of wish I knew about this sooner. <laughs> Definitely be a member. Um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about accessing data in blockchain, but before I do that, just going over some of the trends and kind of what I mean, because I know we probably have people from all backgrounds and Web3 itself is a really new concept. Uh, so I'm going to kind of go through the history of that as well. So if you can all see this, I'm just going to get going. Uh, yep. So here's a bit of the agenda. So Web3 data trends and challenges. Um, I currently am product marketing manager for Covalent, which is the company I work at. So I'm basically full-time in Web3, um, which I have been for about a year. Um, and that means I'm basically on like a crazy roller coaster ride every day of like trying to make sense of NFTs and DAOs um, and primarily how we can support developers to build applications in those areas. So we'll go through, go through some of the data trends themselves, um, as well as what the Covalent API is. So that's our main tool for developers, which is a free API that allows you to access basically all on-chain data. So any data that's actually written to the blockchain, um, we have basically uh, across 32 different blockchains. So whether you're new to this space or not, I mean, some people are mostly just familiar with Ethereum, um, but since the kind of popularity of blockchain and crypto, there's actually hundreds of blockchains and there are private ones and public ones. Um, and eventually I think we will be at a point where you're using the blockchain without realizing that that's actually what's beneath um, all of your transactions. So how to access on-chain data, um, also why that's valuable to do. So building applications that support a user base uh, that's kind of flooding into Web3 just because of the popularity of crypto, especially this past year. And I think the pandemic has had a lot to do with that. People have stayed at home and finding new ways to invest their money. Um, so it's a really exciting space to be in. And then I'll just go over some of our resources, um, project demos, a big 
I think, weakness in blockchain and Web3, and probably why some of you are here, is that it can be really hard to find solid education or onboarding. Um, and everything moves so fast that by the time you develop curriculums, it's kind of out of date sometimes. Um, so we try to do our best. That's a large part of my job as well, is just writing content, making videos, things like that. Um, so I'll go over some of those and then also at the end I just threw in a little bit about career options um, in case anyone else is looking at maybe what full-time roles kind of exist and how you can pursue those. Um, so first is kind of the evolution of the web and I know I've already said web free multiple times so hopefully that hasn't scared anybody yet. I think if you're in the blockchain section of this um, Women Who Code organization you probably understand a little bit but the evolution of the web can basically be broken down into web one web two and now where we're at which is popularly referred to on crypto twitter at least as web three and that basically encompasses everything that's built on a blockchain um, but to just kind of set the scene so web one you can think of as like first version of the internet um, primarily you're just only writing um, to the internet and that's like e-commerce, email, um, you can only, sorry, not only writing, only reading. You can only like go to a web page and see what's on it. Um, so you can think of static websites, um, everything like that before the kind of social era. Web 2 is kind of when the social era developed. So that's more of a participation economy. You're both reading the information, but you're also contributing to it. Um, so you have uh, websites where you log in and you have like your sign in from Instagram and your sign in from Facebook and you have profiles, you have digital identity. Um, and that allowed for a lot more interesting applications, which pretty much like own a large part of our world right now. Um, so that's kind of where the, I guess, pain point for some people and the evolution of a more decentralized system came into play because in Web2, while you are contributing, um, you don't really own any of your data. So when you log into websites like Instagram or Airbnb or Uber or whatever it is, you're basically giving people information on you, but that it's not in your ownership anymore. So that data is super, super valuable and sold between other corporations. Um, and basically you're kind of giving up a piece that would allow you to be profitable. Um, and that's where Web3 kind of comes into play. So a lot of people refer to it as the ownership economy. It's internet, but ideally you log in with a wallet and that's kind of what separates it. Um, so as opposed to logging in with a username and password, connecting a wallet is something that allows you to actually store all of your data and take it around with you um, so that you're not relying on centralized databases of another company. Um, and how that is facilitated is through the use of blockchains. So blockchains are the underlying tech that basically uh, it decentralizes data and it decentralizes systems so that there isn't a single point of failure. Um, so Ethereum, for instance, is one of the most popular blockchains aside from Bitcoin, which is kind of the one everybody knows about, but it's less about smart contracts and development. Um, so Ethereum is basically, it's spread across the world. There's people that validate um, through nodes and um, basically allow decentralized transactions to happen and you don't have to trust the parties that you're interacting with. So this creates a really, really interesting ecosystem where you can be doing business with people from all corners of the earth that you would have never interacted with before um, because everything is written in code. So this trustless component is 
really interesting and underpins a lot of new use cases that we've seen in decentralized finance and um, DAOs, for instance, which are decentralized organizations and they're like communities with a group chat and a, and a fund, basically. <laughs> so yeah, here you can just see what I summarized. Read, read, write, read, write, own. That's kind of the core difference if you really break it down, which is how I would describe it in simple terms. Um, but regardless, crypto adoption is definitely on the upswing, especially in the past couple of years. We've seen really big brands as well get into this space and be more curious about um, how they can participate, how they can probably make money as well. Um, and also launching NFT collections and leveraging some of these trends, which is pretty interesting to see like big um, conglomerates that are kind of having a little bit more fun and like entering the metaverse or at least trying to, whether or not that was successful. Um, and we've also seen government initiatives. So governments with unstable currencies are looking to crypto and looking to stable coins and looking to like alternatives. Um, one of the other benefits to doing this is that it can reduce corruption to have trustless currencies. Um, and yeah, you can also have like proof of your identity on the blockchain and a lot of other concepts that are really interesting. So people are definitely exploring, but in terms of where we are with adoption, which is the big word that gets thrown a lot, around a lot, um, we're still really, really early. So basically, if you look at that other graph that I have on this slide, you can see some of the like major technologies and their adoption curves. So basically, there's a very steep hill to climb before you actually have mass adoption, which is like millions and millions and millions of users across the world. Um, and where we're at now is that there is a dense ecosystem, but things are still really clunky. The user experience isn't that great. If you have interacted in DeFi before, or you've tried to make any sort of trends, you know that it's like not the same experience that you're gonna get as polished companies in Web2. Um, but that's great because is it a little bit frustrating? Yeah, but it doesn't mean that there's a lot of opportunities, totally. So it is a good place to be because especially if you code and if you can develop things, you can be directly solving a lot of those problems that exist. Um, so it's a good place to be for upcoming businesses and for developers. And I think just from where I'm at, from Covalent's standpoint, we pay a lot of attention to developers and it seems that a lot more people are making the jump into this space um, and really curious about how they can do that and what sort of areas they can build in. So that's what our product is actually geared towards helping as well. So just to think about it, um, like a couple of years from now and within 10, 15 years from now, um, we definitely see a lot more people on chain. Um, so already there's millions of pieces of information on blockchains. If you look at analytic sites for decentralized exchanges, you can see there's actually like billions of US dollars locked into those um, protocols, which is pretty crazy to think about. And with all of that comes a lot of data and it's written to blockchains, which means that there needs to be a verifiable method to extract it in order to like build anything meaningful and make use of what's happening. Um, dozens of multi-use blockchains were already past this. The slide's a little bit outdated, so it's really hundreds. Um, and yeah, a lot more applications and potentially billions of users. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, there's a point where you might not know that you're using blockchain at all. And in some cases that already does happen with supply chain management or even banks that have their own private ones that just aren't publicized, but that's a secure way to store their data. The medical record um, problem is 
is one that is suitable for blockchain technology because you need a secure way to store a vast amount of data. Um, so even hospitals and things like that, there's a lot of use cases. Um, but what that means is a problem that we're already really seeing, um, which is that data isn't interoperable. So because anybody can go and create a blockchain and people do, and there's a million different use cases and it's such a new technology, there aren't really standards um, to the way that data is written and there definitely aren't to the way that it's extracted. So Ethereum is what's popularized um, a standard with like, basically it's called EVM, Ethereum Virtual Machine. Um, and that's how they make sense of, it's a rule book for writing to their blockchain. Um, so other chains that have developed since then have basically just copied that and created their whole ecosystem in the exact same way. So they're writing contracts the same way. And that makes it a little bit easier um, in terms of working as a developer and being able to like pull that. But if you think about blockchains like Solana, which you might have heard of, um, they're what's called non-EVM blockchains. So what that means is they have an entirely different architecture, a different rule book. So you can think about one of the ways to think about it is if your data is groceries um, and you are familiar with like a certain chain of a grocery store, if you go into any of those stores in different locations, the layout is pretty much the same. So you know where to go to get things. Solana would be like a different little marketplace in a different country where you like have no idea where anything is. The food is there, but like you don't know where to go and it takes a lot longer. So as an indexing protocol, which is what Covalent does, um, it takes us months for us to index in a blockchain like Solana because we have to learn that entire rule book. Um, so for the individual developer, it's the same thing. That's something that can add on months to developing a project. Um, and we kind of want to remove that, especially as we see more non-EVM chains popping up. And there are like different reasons for doing that. Some want efficiency trade-offs, so they don't want to copy the Ethereum model because it can be slower. Um, but yeah, ultimately, if you're looking at it from a data point of view, there needs to be some way to standardize it because if you want to build any sort of applications that work across multiple chains, like you have assets on Ethereum and on Polygon and on Solana, um, for a user, that's really common. They'll interact in multiple different areas. So the application should reflect that, allowing them to interact and see all their data in different areas. Um, so yeah, blockchains produce limitless amounts of data. Um, if you look on any of block explorers, if you've ever done that, like Etherscan, you can just see it's like a hundred things per second happening. Um, and it can be difficult to understand because there's not a lot of resources on the subject. So I know I just talked a lot about like <laughs> all of the problems, um, but yeah, that's really what Covalent is focused on primarily is just solving the pain points, trying to make it easier and to really think about scaling, um, which is what needs to happen for newer technologies to actually continue to exist. So what is the API? It's basically one API that allows you to access all data in a way that is standardized and clean um, and understandable. So you only need to learn it once. Um, so it's a unified API. What that means is basically we index entire blockchains end to end, um, which otherwise you would need to do as an individual developer, building custom queries, learning each one, creating your own transformation engines, using your own nodes. We basically do all of that um, and we host blockchain data in a database, which is then queryable through our API. 
So you really only need to get familiar with the one tool. Um, you actually don't need to know how to code to use it. We've recently done a lot of work on an analyst mode, um, just seeing that a lot more people are curious about the industry and like, we wanna make data accessible to obviously developers, but also everybody that might wanna do their taxes or might just wanna examine some transactions or maybe look into a hack that happened. Um, and yeah, our biggest strength is the multi-chain ecosystem. So basically uh, developers that wanna build scaling tools uh, or wanna recognize that like users interact all over the map. Um, you can basically change one parameter with our API, which is the chain ID. Uh, and then you can, you can transport your build across whatever chain we index. So it's really useful for, yeah, people that are focused on kind of the future of blockchain and also wanting to do things quickly um, because there's no like, there's no downside to writing custom queries apart from the time it takes and the maintenance. Um, so if you're looking to build faster or you just want to focus on the application, then an API is sometimes a better way to go. So this is kind of like a really, really basic way that I would describe the crypto stack, which is just that you have blockchains themselves and then you have nodes, which are what allows you to interact with them. Um, so this is how you extract data, you read it. And this is what I mentioned. A lot of individuals will pay to run their own nodes, um, but it can just be a step that some people don't want to take. Um, so where we sit is at that basically creating a data layer um, that you as a user or developer building applications can just query from here. So just removing basically like this backend step that isn't, um, isn't necessary sometimes and takes a lot of cost and time and can be kind of overwhelming, especially for developers that we see coming from more traditional backgrounds that don't wanna like go through this entire learning curve. Um, and basically what we see is that's the best way to um, empower a lot more users in the space. So rapidly building new applications, improving applications, being able to really focus on the experience and the front end is something that we need a lot in blockchain because as I mentioned, or if you have experience like going from MetaMask and bridging something to a different chain or um, yeah, just keeping track of your assets even can be really difficult. So those are all things that are intimidating and kind of barriers and make people want to not do this. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if we're going to basically make crypto, blockchain, NFTs, all of these things here to stay, um, need to really improve the experience for the everyday person that isn't going to go in and really take a deep dive and learn all about the history of blockchain and everything that it holds. So the two main kind of groups that I see a lot are developers and analysts. But um, as I mentioned, like I actually came from an economics background and I was able to teach myself how to do all of this. Um, so it's really not that intimidating. It's still a learning curve, but the goal is that I think as we kind of progress into like a lot more deeper, a lot deeper technology, the average person should have a little bit more data literacy to be able to stay safe, stay secure, and just kind of know how to navigate this system. Um, because otherwise, crypto is a dangerous place to be kind of if you don't know how to keep track of your seed phrase. Um, and you, there's a lot of scams and there's a lot of re-entry on smart contracts, for instance, and ways that you can lose funds without knowing if you don't recognize certain pieces of code. So hopefully all those things will change and there will be more protective mechanisms in place. But for now, the average user also I think is a good thing to be more familiar with data, how to get it, how to see it, especially if we're in this ownership economy where you actually really have a stake in it. So 
there's the positive, whether you're not interesting a third party and paying them sort of some sort of cost, whether intrinsic or not. But there's the negative, which is that nobody's really there to help you if things go wrong. So I think it's important for data literacy and more people to understand, um, yeah, how to how to query data, how to build in general, which is really inspiring to see organizations like this that support, um, especially women who want to code, because I will say the space is still pretty male dominated, I would say. <laughs> now we move on to Women Who Code Career Nav, where you'll hear real world career advice from professionals working in the technology industry. This week we have a talk entitled, What My Coding Bootcamp Didn't Teach Me, with Jennifer Diaz, Junior Software Engineer at the Wonderlust Group. Enjoy. So I wanted to start with just a little bit um, to where this presentation came from and what kind of sparked this idea. Uh, so when you finish a bootcamp, especially if you're active on LinkedIn, you'll find that lots of people start reaching out to you. Um, and I started noticing uh, some of those um, questions repeating. And one of the ones that I never quite had a good answer for was, um, did your boot camp adequately prepare you for your role? Uh, my answer was always sort of, well, it kind of did. Um, so I wanted to dig more onto what I meant by that and hopefully answer some of the questions um, such as what do you actually learn in a coding boot camp, and what should I be learning now that I've completed a boot camp and I'm in my job search. And again, a little bit more about me. My name is Jennifer Grenier Diaz, and my pronouns are she and her. And I work as a junior software engineer for the Wanderlust Group. I work remotely, so I am based in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I work on a full stack team, um, and I work mostly with Rails and React. And I'm particularly passionate about working on projects that let me advocate for inclusivity and accessibility within code. I have a previous career in outdoor recreation management, so I was really stoked that my first role in tech um, got to kind of bring some of that all together. And then outside of my job, I also volunteer with Women Who Code, and I co-host that monthly tech night that was mentioned earlier, so I hope to see some of you there. And then outside of tech, um, I really love doing things outside and taking advantage of everything that's around me in Colorado. I'm a cyclist. Um, I enjoy skiing, reading. Um, I picked up embroidery during the pandemic. And then my favorite way to unwind after a really long day of coding is with really bad reality TV. Uh, favorite ones recently are Ultimatum and um, Is It Cake? I don't know where they find these people, but they make for some really good TV. And then a little bit more about my boot camp experience. So I attended the Flatiron Coding Bootcamp from November, excuse me, from August to November of 2020. And thinking back to where the world was at that point. This was kind of when things were shutting down with the pandemic. So while I signed up for an on-campus program, um, it was fully remote. Um, I think for the first three months, they were saying two more weeks and it just kept being two more weeks. Uh, so I had to be pretty flexible and adjust to my on-campus being what you see here on the right, my desk and um, two monitors. Um, I did receive a partial scholarship from a bootcamp. And I, I mentioned this because I don't think boot camps necessarily do a good job of advertising that scholarships exist. Um, and I think that's a really great way for it to be accessible for more people. And I know I wouldn't have been able to attend if, if that wasn't an option for me. And then after my boot camp, um, I actually had my first interview with TWG two minutes after my graduation finished. So it was quite a whirlwind. Um, interviewed with them over the next few weeks. And then I started a role with TWG in January of 2021. A um, little bit more about my current role. I work on a pretty small team. I think we're at 19 engineers now. 
Um, and I work most closely with a group of four people. So it has a really small, intimate feel, and that may kind of um, affect the advice I give. So keep that in mind that if you end up working at a really big company, the environment may be a little bit different. And then overview of presentation for tonight. So I do have a resource document that Jen is going to share in the chat. Um, also, it's kind of think of it like a companion guide. So as I go through the slides, you can follow along and see the resources that I recommend going to for more information. Um, I'm going to start with some things I think my boot camp got right. Um, and then other things that I've had to learn more on the job that uh, may be worth considering if you're wondering what to start learning next. And I have that broken down into technical skills and professional skills. Then I have a quick summary and hopefully we'll have um, about 10 minutes for questions at the end. So starting with concepts that I think my boot camp got right. So the first one, I think the base level intro knowledge of the tech stack they teach was appropriate for the amount of time and what we had to learn. Um, so we learned Ruby and JavaScript and then added frameworks to that. So Rails and React. Now, next thing was in my bootcamp, we had a final project and uh, we were required to include a technology that was not included in the curriculum in that final project. Um, and that process of independently learning a new, um, for me, it was a framework, uh, really kind of boosted my confidence leaving the bootcamp that, that I, I can learn new things and, and take what I've learned and apply it to other languages as well. And then this next one, this might sound a little silly, but an important thing I learned was how to learn how to code. Uh, so I have a very heavy academic background. I've got a bachelor's and a, and a master's degree. Um, and through those programs, I got really good at uh, memorizing information and regurgitating it and turning that into a paper. And while that's a skill, it's probably not the best skill for learning how to code. So I had to really adjust um, how I learned to be successful. Uh, and the first technique I had for this was the idea of a build and burn. So that was uh, creating a, a project really just for the sake of getting practice and reps in and not necessarily trying to recreate Facebook, just you know, having a project for the sake of doing it. Um, and then the next one, I sort of established a framework for myself for asking effective questions. Um, so I, before I reach out and ask a question, I um, write down what my issue is, what kind of errors or code um, related things am I having? What have I tried so far? What have I Googled and found on my own? Um, and then once I've done all that, I go ahead and I ask the question. And that not only helps me know that I have done my part in researching it, but also helps the person answering the question answer the question for me. And then the next one, working remotely. Again, this was a little bit of a side effect because it wasn't necessarily what I'd signed up for the boot camp for, but um, this was my first time working at a computer all day and my first time working from home. So I had to pick up some traits um, to help me be successful in that. My favorite one was I had a snack shack, which you may have seen in the previous picture. There's a bag of popcorn in the corner. Um, it really helped me to have uh, snacks with me throughout the day. So if I was really tired during a class, they were right there. And I still do that today. I, I actually have to remind myself to mute sometimes so people don't hear me munching at my desk. And then writing good readmes. So I bring this one up because it's one of the ways that I've seen applicants really stand out um, in their code exercises they submit for us. Um, and I have a good resource that goes deeper into this, but um, the readme is your first document that people see when they view your project on GitHub. And um, it's kind of your first opportunity to make a good first impression. Um, yeah, so definitely something I, if you're doing a code problem for an interview to, to have that in there. 
And then next, I just want to share some general advice from my boot camp that really stuck with me and there's still things that I reflect on today. So the first one is to not compare yourself to others. Um, the people in your coding boot camp and the people that you work with have different backgrounds from you. I work with people with CS degrees, I work with people who are self-taught, and I work with other boot camp grads. And just keeping in mind that um, it's better for me to track my own progress instead of comparing it to other people's. And then a project is never done. Um, this is was really helpful kind of in the you know gap after my, my coding boot camp is that if you wait until you feel as if a project is totally done, you may never share it. Uh, so to um, have kind of a, a minimum viable product in mind and share it then, and then iterate on it and improve on it um, in small chunks. And then working in thin vertical slices, this was something our bootcamp really encouraged. Uh, it's tempting when you're new to build out your entire backend and then go and try and build out your entire front end. And this, uh, it's not the best way to do it. And I think working in thin vertical slices helped prepare me to working in more of an agile environment. And then the next one, um, this one is particularly helpful after I've had a long day of coding, is just to remember that computers are rocks that we've tricked into thinking. And now moving into more of the skills that I think my bootcamp um, didn't, didn't include. And these are ones that either I think that they should include moving forward or just ones that I think would be good skills to work on when you're in your job search. So the first one of those is web accessibility. Um, and just a quick definition of that, it's the concept of the code that you write should be usable for people with disabilities. Um, and not just usable, but they should also be able to contribute to um, and interact with the web. Um, so accessibility is not only important for legal and business implications, but it's really become a basic human right. If you think of where we are in the world today, if you need information about getting a COVID test or a vaccine, or you need emergency information about a fire that might need might be nearby. Um, if the code that you write to present that information isn't accessible, then there are people that are gonna be missing out on that important information. And then I also think that web accessibility is something that's missed not just by boot camps, but by CS degrees. I've met senior engineers where it's, it's a relatively new concept to them. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of why we see some of the issues with accessibility that we see today. But I do wanna leave you with a couple tips on getting started with this. So, how I originally got started with being aware of accessibility with the code I write is using an automated accessibility tool. And the one that I recommend starting with is the Wave Web Accessibility. Um, it's an extension that I have on Chrome. Um, and you run it on your site on Mac, it's just shift command U to run it. And it has a little dashboard and kind of points out in your UI what might be potential accessibility issues, links to resources on how to fix it. And that's a really great way to start seeing initially as you're developing issues that may exist in your code. And then once you've gotten good with an automated tool to start learning about manual testing. So this is interacting with your app in the way in which someone with a disability may interact with it. So it could be trying to navigate just using your keyboard or trying to navigate with just your mouse or even using a screen reader and then identifying issues that may occur based on that. And the next one is the shell and writing scripts. Um, so I did some of this in my bootcamp, but I don't think I really understood what I was doing or really how this could be powerful. Um, so the shell is a textual interface that you use to interact with your computer. And then shell scripts is a series of shell commands written in a file. Um, and an example of this that I did recently, we were um, taking a break from our normal workflow. And instead of working on new features, I was asked to kind of start paying down some of our tech debt. 
And one of my cards that I was assigned was to rename a number of our files. And I think it was like 80 or 90 files throughout our code base. Um, instead of going through and doing those all by hand, I wrote a script that went through and renamed all those files for me. So it really allows you to automate commands and repetitive tasks um, and gets to be a little bit more efficient. So some ways to start working on this, I really recommend the missing semester of your CS education. It's um, put on by, I think, a couple professors at MIT um, and goes a lot deeper into this and gives you some problems to work through to learn it as well. And then also uh, starting to work on more complex problem uh, projects, be those ones that maybe other bootcamp grads are started, or also consider finding an open source project that you can start contributing to. And then version control, Git and GitHub. So my bootcamp did have us using GitHub, um, but very basically. Um, and I don't think I fully, again, just like the shell, I don't think I fully knew what I was doing. Um, so a little bit more about what I mean by this version control. This is a system that tracks record changes to a file. And then GitHub is the software, excuse me, Git is one of the more popular softwares used for tracking these changes. And then GitHub is the online platform where you store your files and they're stored in a way in which other people can contribute to them as well. So something that I use every day as an engineer really makes working collaboratively more efficient and being able to uh, do things like cherry picking and rebasing a branch and not having to Google what all of that means um, is a good skill, I think, for a junior engineer. Then some ways to start working on this, start practicing good Git habits early, specifically with commits, having small commits that you push up frequently and um, having names that, that are uh, more helpful than, wow, this was hard. Uh, so having a commit message that tells you what you're actually working on. And then just like the previous slide, try to start working on more complex projects, um, consider a, a open source project if you can. And then something I started using at my current role is GitHub desktop. Um, so I think it's really important to know how to use the CLI to um, use GitHub, but GitHub desktop puts a, um, a, a visual part to all of these commands and it helped me understand what the commands were doing a little bit more. For example, if you're cherry picking commits from one branch to another, you literally just click and drag them over. And, and I think that was the first time that I really knew what that meant. And then again, the missing semester uh, goes over this a little bit more as well. And then working on code that you didn't write. So when you're in a coding bootcamp, you're working primarily on code bases that you wrote yourself, or you may have been pairing with one or two other people, but you were in the room um, while all that code was being written. And when I first saw the size of the code base that I work on now, I was I was pretty intimidated. It, it you know, we've, uh, I do work on legacy code. So it's been created, started in 2015 till today. So there's a lot of complex things going on with dependencies and versions and external libraries that we're using. Um, and I, having more experience doing this before you look at one in your first job um, can kind of have you be more prepared for that. Um, an example of this, I, in my bootcamp, we learned the most recent version of React and I was working with um, class and functional based components and using hooks. And I got to my current job and we're using a version of React that's a few years older and we weren't using any hooks and all of our components were class-based and that was pretty confusing at first. Um, so knowing how to um, write something with a hook and then convert it into how you would do that beforehand. So some ways to uh, work on this skill, 
is to reference the documentation for a code base that you're working on, be that a README, or there may be other documentation that's not necessarily in the README. Hopefully it's linked in the README, but, but ask, because they may have it elsewhere. Um, and then avoid the temptation to refactor code just for the sake of refactoring it. You may see a React component and say, oh, I could rework this with a hook and it would be more efficient. But if it's currently working and it's not related to what you're working on, Sometimes it's better to, to leave it as it is. And then ask a lot of questions when you're looking at a new code base um, and start uh, documenting the answers to those questions. They will likely either help you later on or when someone new joins the team, you'll be able to answer those questions for them a little bit quicker. And then again, like I've said a few times, um, start contributing to open source projects, getting experience, opening a new code base that's big and, and navigating through it um, is, is a really good skill to have. And then the last one for our technical skills is testing your code. So I think that this is now in the curriculum and it may have been during my time, but I, I didn't get to it. So we're gonna pretend that Flatiron in 2020 did not teach testing your code. Uh, so my dumbed down definition as to what this means is it's code written to ensure your code is working. And um, this can get really complicated. So I, I'm gonna be kind of surface level. Um, two most frequent types you'll hear discussed are unit tests and integration tests. So a unit test is a test written on an individual unit of code, think a function or a method. And then an integration test um, is a test that looks at those different units that are working together or interacting um, and exposing any faults in that interaction. Um, and then you'll see my little chart over here going through test-driven development. Um, so this is the idea that you start by understanding your goal, you write a test for that, you have the test fail, write the code to pass the test, and then um, refactor the code. Uh, so some of the, the benefits of working in this way is that it's going to um, allow you to more quickly find and correct issues in your code. It helps the developer understand your requirements before you begin writing your code. And ultimately, um, it's going to result in a code base that has higher test coverage, because if you wait to do something at the end, it's less likely to get done. Um, so some ways to start learning how to test your code is to add it to personal projects. Um, and then again, start working on more complex projects. Most of the open source projects that I've started looking at have tests baked in already. So getting the experience of running those and seeing them fail and how to adjust them um, is a great skill to have. And now moving into more of the professional skills. The first one here is reading technical texts. So uh, when I started my current job, I was encouraged to pick up Practical Object-Oriented Design by Sandy Metz, um, which is a great book. I would encourage you to, to pick it up as well if you work with Ruby. Um, but I also found it pretty discouraging. It was pretty hard for me to get through. Uh, it's got some really dense concepts in there. Um, and one of the things that I remind myself is that this is written for developers of all levels of experience. And I work with staff level engineers who are still trying to, to understand these concepts. Um, I attended RubyConf last year, and um, I linked a presentation in that resource doc that um, it's actually from a former teacher that talks about how to understand what you're reading. Um, but it was really impactful for me because I was in Pooter and, excuse me, practical oriented design um, abbreviates to Pooter. Uh, I was reading that and, again, feeling discouraged. And one of the things he recommended is to create what I'm calling here a reading bookmark. Um, and it just has a list of questions to kind of check my understanding and to reflect on as I'm reading to um, help me write notes that are good. 
um, and think about how this applies to what I'm doing for, for work. So the questions I have on the bookmark for what I'm reading now, this is from the well-grounded Rubius, is do we do this at work and can I find an example of it? What questions do I have about this? Is this something that's new to me? And how is this different from code that I've written? Um, and then another way to, to work through kind of these bigger texts is to read with other people, um, find a book club to join or, or even start a book club with um, other Women Who Code members to, to work through texts that you guys may be interested in reading together. And then code reviews. So I think we touched on these in our boot camp, but we just automatically approved it because again, we were pairing with people and we were there while we were writing the code. Um, and I found it's much different than that in the real world. Um, so code reviews is the process of having your code checked by other developers prior to merging it into a project. And it's sort of two halves to this is the author, you're the one who's taking the code, putting it in a pull request to be reviewed. And then as the reviewer, you're um, going through the code and giving feedback and suggestions. Um, and as a new developer, this was really um, intimidating for me. I remember like starting to sweat as I pushed that create pull request button. Um, but some things that have helped me with that is to remember that um, the idea of the code review is to make your code better. You don't have to, it doesn't have to feel perfect before you push it up there and getting feedback on your code review isn't a good thing. It's, isn't a bad thing, excuse me. It's a good thing. It means that um, your coworkers are giving you good feedback and you're able to improve your code. Um, I also think it's a great thing when you're interviewing to discuss. It's a, it's kind of a good indicator of company culture. If you ask about code reviews and someone says, well, that's where I like to be mean, then that's a good idea that maybe these aren't the best people to be working with. So some tips with this as the reviewer, um, is to ask pointed questions instead of demanding a change. So instead of saying this div should be a p tag, you could say, is there a reason you used a div? Could we consider a p tag because it's more semantic? And then as the author, being grateful for suggestions and recognizing that um, intent and emotion doesn't always transfer online, um, and that assuming that people are have good meaning behind that. And then lastly, contribute to an open source project. Um, while it works at a much slower pace than it probably will in a workplace, um, getting that experience of putting together a pull request and getting feedback is, is valuable. And the next, um, structuring your workday. So I am fortunate enough that, again, I work at a pretty small team and I'm able to set my own schedule. I, I do have meetings that are weekly that I need to attend. Um, but outside of that, I get to um, create things that work well for me. Um, and this is great, but also was required me to be really intentional about how I set my day. Um, you can see on the side here, I've got sort of a sample day in the life of Jen as an engineer. Um, I start with that first hour, I call this coffee time. Um, so this is sort of my warm up for my day. Um, I may be wrapping up tasks from yesterday. I also, I work on some code problems through code wars with coworkers. So I'll do these in the morning, just sort of to get me thinking about coding, but not necessarily diving into the most complicated task that I'm currently working in. And then um, we have a weekly stand up, or I may have a planning meeting in the morning, got some time for coding. Um, and then lunch, I do actually write this in to make sure that I do take it and I don't, you know, end up at three o'clock and I haven't eaten yet. Um, and then more time for coding. And then I will, also sometimes indicate when I have heads down time. So for me, this means time when I'm focusing on something that I really need all of my attention on. And um, I do communicate this through Slack or Google so that people know maybe not to ping me with a meme or something silly um, and instead only to reach out if they absolutely need to. 
And then I may have a, another meeting in the afternoon, something like a design meeting, or sometimes we have social meetings worked in. And then more time in the afternoon for um, coding. Usually in the afternoon, I'll try and pair with someone else. Um, hopefully I get an afternoon walk with my dog in. And then the last hour I try to reserve for kind of wrapping up tasks. Um, and I also summarize my notes from the day and kind of highlight things I learned that I may need to document. Um, and then, so it's important not to skip your breaks, not just because it's good for your mental health, but it also, um, I think really makes you a better engineer. I know a number of times I just walk to my front door and open the door and I have an idea of how to, how to fix something I've been working on. Um, so taking that time away from your computer really does help make you a better engineer. So then in summary, I think my boot camp was a, a really vital, important step for me as my entry into tech. Um, I also think you can successfully do this being self-taught or with a CS degree. Um, but for me, I needed something relatively quick and um, I needed something with structure because I knew self-taught um, would have been really challenging for me to feel confident in what I was working in. And then the skills that I find most useful in my everyday are not necessarily that I've picked up four new languages on my own, but that I can work efficiently as a developer, that I can collaborate with others um, in a way that makes sense. Um, and ultimately I can you know, keep working on new features and, and uh, driving our products. Um, so some ways to work on learning these skills, again, consider contributing to an open source project. I do have a resource on the bottom of the doc. Um, I've licked a couple communities, there's one in Boulder and Denver to consider, and then Ruby for good, if you happen to code in Ruby. And then another one in there that goes through the process of doing a, a first pull request for an open source project. Um, and then I sort of touched on this, but include skills other than new languages. So I think when you leave a bootcamp, you've been so used to just having new things um, thrown at you that you, you think like, well, maybe I should learn two new backend languages and another framework. Um, and I think that's good to do if you have a specific one in mind or if you're applying to a specific role that you know you need a specific language, but also to include some of these other skills um, like working with the shell and, and GitHub that help make you more efficient and are gonna allow you to be a little bit more independent as a junior engineer. And then start attending um, meetups in your area, ones related to what you code in or ones that you wanna learn. Um, one that I would recommend is the Women Who Co Code uh, Boulder Denver monthly tech night. Um, again, I do co-host that with Jen and I hope to see some of you there. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Welcome to today's Women Who Code podcast. My name is Jennifer Gong, and I am a director for Women Who Code's New York City Network as well as a software engineer at Remesh. Uh, today, I'm excited to have the honor of interviewing Valerie Aguilar. Valerie is a senior software engineer at Motive. She is also a member of Tequeria, Latinas in Tech, and Women Who Code, and has over 10 years of experience in a variety of engineering roles. She has a bachelor's degree in management information systems from Texas Tech University. Hi, Valerie, welcome, and how are you? 
Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. Doing good. I had my coffee, so off to a good start. <laughs> nice. Yes, it's early there for you, right? So there you go. So just to kick off, tell us a little bit about your career journey so far and um, what you're doing now at Motive. Yeah, so I, I went to school, as you mentioned, in Texas. And right after I graduated, I landed my first job in Dallas. So I moved to Dallas, started my career there. I worked for two different companies. It was a little under 10 years and just worked in a variety of roles. You know, obviously started from entry level, did a bit of SRE, like platform type work, also software engineering. And then, yeah, like towards the end of my career there, one of my good friends was recruited to Silicon Valley to work for Google. And she kind of put the the bug in my ear, like, hey, you should really, you know, start interviewing over here. Obviously, you know, everyone knows Silicon Valley. And I, I thought, okay, you know, let, let me give it a shot. Um, I started interviewing there and it was just uh, a tough process. So I, I finally made the decision, you know, I'm just going to move. I'm just going to move to the Bay Area and try to get my foot in the door that way because there's so much talent here. It was really hard to land a job from Texas, you know. And so I moved here. The interview process was really, really tough. Uh, so I did some contract work for about two and a half years and then finally landed a, a full-time job at Chariot. I was so excited, so relieved. And then unfortunately, within a few months, uh, they went under. So the, the business shut down and I was back on the market. And that's how I landed at Motive. Uh, I've been here three and a half years now. It's been wonderful. It's been challenging, um, so much growth. And yeah, I'm, I'm having a, a really good time. That's great. Uh, sounds like it was a tough decision to move to Silicon Valley. Um, and you already mentioned a little bit about interviewing, but you know, what were the biggest challenges in kind of making that leap and, and taking that move? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, challenging is, is an understatement. I had no idea what I was in for. I would say one of the first things that I noticed was the interview process was really different uh, than what I had experienced so far. Uh, not to say that the interviews were easy in you know my Texas experience, but in Silicon Valley, it was like an all day, you know, multiple round interview process. And I remember my first interview, I just went in and just totally bombed. And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I, I have some work to do. It, it was really tough, which is kind of why I went the direction of contracting and, um, you know, just tried to really interview a lot, get the practice, um, network. I started attending events. You know, there are events specifically for women to, it's kind of like speed dating for, for interviewing uh, at companies. So I started attending those types of events, just really trying to uh, get my feet wet and, and, you know, practice over time. So uh, yeah, it worked out, but it was, it was really tough. Yeah, I think a lot of our, our members, you know, also kind of struggle with long interview processes and imposter syndrome, you know, when they're yeah. kind of getting rejected from job after job, kind of what advice or, or what, what kept you motivated during all of that? Yeah, yeah I, I would say, you know, I had really good family and friend support. Um, you know, when I was thinking about moving here, I remember talking to my mom and saying, hey, mom, I 
I'm going to move to one of the most expensive cities in the States and I, I don't have a job there yet. What do you think? <laughs> and she was like, go for it. And, you know, my family was the same way, my friends and just, you know, having that support and knowing that I had someone to lean on. I didn't want to give up. So knowing that I, it, that really helped me pull through, um, you know, there, there were times I'm not going to lie where I questioned whether I had made a smart decision or not. So yeah, they, they really helped me pull through in that. And I, and I'm glad that I stuck it out because it worked out well. Yeah. It's so important to have that family support, um, and encouragement, right? So we should all encourage each other to keep going. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it's like working at Motive and what the company culture is like? Yeah, it's it's been really great. I think overall, the company has an amazing culture. We have uh, amazing programs. We have uh, a fantastic director of diversity and inclusion, uh, Kelly Gonzalez. She, from the beginning, she's really helped get me, you know, opportunities to not just focus on engineering skills, but strengthening other skills. So she approached me with a speaking opportunity at Dequeria and, you know, I, I'm very introverted. <laughs> so my first reaction was like, oh God, I, I can't do that. I, you know, I don't want people to see me shaking. She's been fantastic. Um, you know, our employee brand as well, Brie, you know, connected me with you all and just being involved that way. And then I would say, um, as far as engineering culture, it's just been a really safe space for me. I moved here with over 10 years experience and on paper, it's like, oh, she should be, you know, really high level. And, you know, I think that just knowing that I had to kind of take a step back because my experience was different. And so at Motive, I feel it's a really safe place to ask the questions when I don't understand something, you know, really speak up and admit like, hey, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What is that technology? I don't have experience with it. People are really up to the task to explaining it and teaching. And the engineers that I work with come from very diverse backgrounds, all levels, staff down to entry level, and just being in a room with so many different people and, you know, hearing their experiences, what they know about, and learning from that has just been fantastic. That's great. And uh, it's so funny that you, know, you had that reaction to speaking at your first conference. <laughs> I probably would have had the exact same one. How did you just find the courage to kind of go go ahead and, and do it? You know, you had the encouragement of your head of diversity, but head of diversity, did you do? <laughs> yeah, so really funny story. Um, so that was the first time that I had been given an opportunity to speak. And of course, we had been planning the event for, for months ahead. And um, it was going to be an in-person event in the office. So I knew I was going to have to stand in front of a group of people and hold a microphone. And I was freaking out. So I uh, I joined Toastmasters and started really trying to strengthen my public speaking skills. So I did that. And, you know, it was really eye-opening because it seems so intimidating to do those things. But when you get there, it's like people like me who are shaking and they, they don't even want to look, make eye contact. <laughs> so uh, that was, that was a really fun, you know, learning adventure. And then, so I was just really trying to prepare myself and then write like literally maybe two or three weeks before the event was supposed to happen, COVID hit. And 
So they, they canceled it and they said, you know, we're going to, we're going to push it to the late later in the year. And I thought, okay, I have more time, but they pushed it a few months. I think we all thought we'd be back in the office within a couple of weeks. That wasn't the case. <laughs> so it ended up being a virtual event. So I thought, oh my gosh, it saved me. <laughs> so I guess that's one silver lining of COVID is, you know, I kind of had that transition of, of doing a virtual event instead of having to stand. So we'll see. Um, hopefully I'll work my way up to an, a live in-person event. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was a really good experience. Nice. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, in-person events will come back soon and you'll have that opportunity again. Um, so you're speaking for Tequeria and doing all of these things, you know, diversity and inclusion, like you mentioned, is a passion of yours. Um, why is it so important to you? And kind of tell us a little bit about the work you're doing within your company and outside related to it. Yeah. So, um, you know, at work, like I mentioned, Kelly just and Bree, they do a fantastic job of getting us opportunities to get involved. Um, we've been part of or sponsored, you know, some conferences. The first conference I went to here was uh, Latinas in Tech, which is really cool. Just walking into a room full of people like me. I had never worked with another Latina engineer. So just meeting so many, it was eye-opening. You know, making a presence there, I think Motive does a really good job with that. And of course, you know, now speaking with you, these types of things are fantastic. And then, you know, another side of that is hiring. So I'm fortunate to be part of the hiring process at Motive. And, you know, it's really important. And I, I love that some of my managers have said, you know, we have these conversations about what things do we need to look for, right? It's not just about passing or, or solving the coding problem in an interview. What do we need to look for to be able to hire women? And then on the other side of that, let's make sure that we're hiring good allies for, for women and make sure that, you know, there aren't any flags when it comes to that and, and make sure that there's just support all around. And yeah, I think Outside of work, uh, just trying to stay involved in, in the organizations and attend events and things like that. And yeah, I have young nieces, so just trying to set an example, hopefully for them, and, and they don't have to go through what I went through. Um, I think we all probably, you know, hope that for the younger generation. So just trying to, to you know, help them along the way as well. Oh, that's great. I love that you're trying to set that example for your that younger generation and your, your family. Um, and it's so important that you're involved with hiring. I mean, like that's where it starts, right. In terms of building that yeah. diverse culture. Um, I think you mentioned also before that your um, part of your role is mentoring junior engineers. Um, so what does that look like for you? And when you're, when you're mentoring um, and how important is it to you that you help junior engineers find those career growth opportunities within your company? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. You know, I at Motive this was this has been my first opportunity to kind of mentor some of the junior entry level engineers and just kind of touching on on what we talked about earlier with diversity and imposter syndrome. It's a struggle every day. I still learn how to deal with that myself, but I also feel like sometimes I can see others kind of struggling with things that maybe I experienced before like sitting in a room and, and you're just in your head the whole time. Like, I want to say something, but what do I say? And when do I say it? And then you don't end up saying anything and your voice isn't heard. So 
you know, trying to say like, I, I think so-and-so has, might have some input here, you know, trying to help nudge a bit and, and just trying to identify those areas that I know I had a really hard time with and, and still do today. So really trying to kind of use my experience to help them along. Yeah, I love that. Like you have to be so proactive and, you know, sometimes people just need a little bit of encouragement to speak up um, when it's so hard for them to do themselves. So, so that's really yeah. great. So switching gears just a little bit, um, what are you most passionate about outside of work? I would say probably the most important thing for me is uh, mental health awareness. So I have some family members uh, that I I love so much that struggle with mental health issues. And I think it's unfortunate that there's such a stigma, you know, especially in the Latino community, you know, growing up, we we didn't talk about it. We, We didn't know what resources were out there to help, you know, guide you through and it doesn't have to be like a severe mental illness, but people just struggling. And I try to learn more about it to so that I can be a good support system for my family and, you know, also learn how to navigate those waters. And then also just, you know, make sure that I'm taking care of myself, you know, self-care. It's, it's really important to me. I hope someday, you know, there's not such a stigma around talking about it and, you know, the, the system improves. There's a lot of work to do there. and. Yeah, I would say on a on a lighter note, um, I love traveling. I travel when I can. It's been a while, unfortunately, um, but yeah, I, I love to travel. Uh, I wish everybody could experience, you know, international travel. And uh, I have a also have a Yorkie named Zoe, and I, I'm obsessed with her. She's a handful and keeps me busy. But yeah. Uh, Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, and <laughs> mental health, especially now during times of COVID, you know, it's come up quite a lot and so it's it's very important to to be aware and to be supportive in that space um any fun trips planned for the year now that we're kind of at the tail end of pandemic hopefully (laughs) yeah uh, I know I can't wait (laughs) um (laughs) nothing official yet uh, but I do have something that I I've been trying to slowly plan. I really want to go to Antarctica that's it's on my bucket list you know I so hopefully Maybe not this year, but early next year. We'll see. <laughs> so fun. Yeah, Antarctica's on my bucket list too. Should be a oh, fun, fun trip for you. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Maybe we can trade notes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so one final question for you, which we end all of our podcasts on. Um, any pro tips or advice that you have for women in tech? Yeah, I would say be persistent. I think it's it's challenging for everybody. And if it's something that you really want to do, don't give up, you know, interview a lot to get the practice, you know, strengthen those interviewing skills, um, network. There's so many groups that I didn't know about until I moved here, like Women Who Code, Tequeria, Latinas in Tech, all of these groups that are just really good communities um, for support, you know, offering advice. There's a lot of practice that you can do with these groups, I, I would just say, yeah, don't, don't give up. And it's really important to, to help each other out. And uh, I think once, you know, once you do get to a point where you're deciding, you know, what, which company you want to work for, make sure that you find a company that's 
investing in your future, that's investing in your growth, you know, ask those questions in the interview process, you know, what, how often am I going to discuss my career path with my manager? What do you have in place so that I know the areas I need to grow in and how I need to get there and what my next steps are? I think that's really important. You know, I, I'm fortunate at Motive to, to have that kind of support. We talk about it weekly. I think that's one of the biggest things for me is just knowing where I want to go and how to get there. So I think hopefully everybody can, can have that. Yeah, that's definitely really important. So many companies don't have their career paths lined out and um, to kind of know where you are on that journey is is really important. So great advice. Uh, Well, that's all I have for you, but thanks so much, Valerie. It was really fun speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And, uh, you know, so I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for everything you do with Women Who Code. I think it's so important and yeah, I had a really good time. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate and comment.